Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Nicolette Rubenstein, who is a director of SuperEd, Unisuper, and Zurich Australia. Welcome. Thank you, Alex. How are you? Very well. So earlier this year, we had you as part of the Conexus Financial Retirement Conference, and you were talking a lot about sort of how to build a happy retirement. Can you give us a little bit of a background in terms of when you think about happy retirement, what does that mean to you? Yeah, sure. Um, I think the realisation for me was actually um, having spent my career in uh, looking at the financial side of uh, retirement how much more there was to the picture than just finances. And, and in fact, that realisation that finances actually, um, you know, are, are actually a very small predictor of, of happiness in retirement. So it's been actually a bit of a personal labour of love. Um, done a lot of reading, a lot of thinking about happiness in retirement. Uh, and, you know, again, the, the kind of aha moment was, how much it's actually the softer things that drive uh, your real enjoyment level in retirement. So things like um, your purpose, whether you feel like you've got a purpose in life, in retirement, uh, your community, your relationships, uh, your sense of belonging. Um, So, uh, you know, that's sort of all foreign territory for your uh, typical actuary particularly. Um, And the other realisation that I had was really about spending a lot longer in retirement or, or, or living a lot longer than I had otherwise um, expected. Uh, and I did one of those long, I actually did a few of those longevity calculators and it, it, it you know, predicted that I was going to live to 100 and beyond. Uh, and I've ended up reading a lot about longevity and, and I've just actually finished another book by uh, David Sinclair called uh, Lifespan. Uh, you know, and, and it, it, there's every possibility that we will, uh, many of us will live beyond 100. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's a new problem that we've got as a society. Um, uh, how are we going to spend sort of these latter years? Uh, how long are we going to work, part-time working, flexible working? And how are we going to be happy? And uh, one of the... Um, statistics that really stood out was from a Harvard study and they categorized this cohort of Harvard graduates from I think they were from the 1930s and they categorized them in retirement according to whether they were happy well sad sick or prematurely dead Uh, and only 28 percent of them were categorized as happy well in retirement Uh, you know and for a bunch of Harvard graduates you know isn't that a, a very very um depressing statistic uh, that such a small proportion are are happy well uh, in retirement. So, uh, yeah, anyway, a lot, lot to think about, about how we focus on the non-financial side of things, you know, as an industry as well. Let's, let's, let's stick to the, the happy well sort of piece, right? And, and we always talk about money not buying happiness and so forth. 
What what do you feel is sort of missing for a lot of people when they get to retirement? Is is the drive of sort of work, the nine to five grind, it sort of gives people meaning and then the whole stopping and going to retirement is just maybe too much for a lot of people? Yeah, I I definitely think that's one component of it, this purpose. Um, and um, they say that the people who do the worst are actually uh, in retirement are often people like doctors whose um, whole sense of self uh, and sort of reason for being is so closely tied to their occupation. And But that could be said for a lot of occupations, by the way. You know, if you think of academics or, um, you know, even politicians, uh, that sort of thing. So, um, you know, spending some time on what is your purpose in retirement is is a really good thing and I've you know as part of this whole journey I've come across a couple of people um, in our industry who've now sort of moved into that area of helping retirees and pre-retirees work out what their purpose is going to be uh, in uh, in retirement and I, I think that is a, a very fruitful and, and rewarding place to be. Uh, and the other angle on it actually is um, uh, relationships. So people who um, are not good at building relationships or don't have a, you know, happy partnership with somebody, uh, that's the other source of, um, you know, really sadness in retirement. Um, another one that this Harvard um, study picks up a lot on is actually uh, alcoholism and you know they looked at what are predictors at age 50 of people who will um, uh, not be happy in retirement and um, yeah drinking a lot at age 50 was you know a kind of very significant predictor of of kind of being sad sick in retirement so yeah so go easy on the wines <laughs> that's uh, yeah that's probably uh not great advice some people must be listening thinking geez that's uh is, is a bit of a worry for themselves but you know i guess this whole covid environment has as particularly people being working from home and and their lifestyles changed dramatically i think for a number of people um it, it's given them a chance to reflect on what's important to them. It may have even given a bit of a pushback on the whole consumerism and, and the need for constant entertainment because a lot of it, traditional entertainment hasn't been available. So hopefully the, there is some benefits from this environment to actually get people to sort of think about, well, how to be active and actually how to you know, reflect on your life and, and, and what makes you happy. Yeah, I, I mean, I've personally loved uh, this isolation and lockdown. It's you know, I've just my whole life has slowed down and I've loved spending time with family and family dinners and games and more exercise and, um, you know, meditating. Uh, so, but, you know, the, the reality is there's been a couple of different segments and there's a couple of segments for whom it has not been an enjoyable experience and anyone with small children <laughs> was, you know, you, if you speak to them, it's been very tough. Uh, and, you know, anyone um, with any kind of mental health issues as well, I think it's been hard, especially if, if, if you're lonely. Uh, so, you know, we have to be very cognizant of these diff different segments. You know, overwhelmingly, the boards that I'm on, we've been seeing surveys of um, staff, how they're going. And it's amazing. Overwhelmingly, there's a lot of support for working from home. Um, 
And I, I do think there will be a step change in working habits from now on. Um, there, there's a lot of evidence about the business benefits of working from home, and I'm not just talking about property <laughs> saving costs on, on uh, you know, your rental costs, uh, but actually in terms of employee engagement. Um, so w- one study I, I saw showed that for every hour of uh, working from home, uh, employment employee engagement rises up to a maximum of about two days a week. So it's quite feasible that employees, um, you know, you can justify it in a in a business case that employees can work um, uh, up to two days a week. I would say from home is is very feasible, um, but it's got to be very carefully managed because the other thing that we've learned is that online meetings. Um, you know, work in limited circumstances, but they're definitely not a panacea. And I can't see us really embracing online board meetings for longer than we than we have to. So we do need to get people physically uh, back together, uh, which means that this whole working from home cannot be a whole free for all. You know, we I think we do need days when when most people are back in the office because um, uh, you know physical connection does work best. Oh, look, that's that's absolutely the case. I think, you know, it has worked so well for a lot of businesses because you know your people, you've been working with them for, for months or years. So you've got that sort of that relationship already built and so zoom just is a is a, a way to sort of catch up as a as a temporary method but as a business grows and needs to hire new people I, I can't imagine how you sort of hire people and they're just always so far away they're always so distant so i think that's that is definitely uh, a big change that that will sort of it will happen in terms of working from home being available but at the same time there needs to be this ability to to get everyone on the same team so to speak yeah, I agree with that, that, um, you know, it's sort of worked over a few months because we've got those existing relationships and we've got that trust. Um, but uh, it's not going to, you know, it's not going to work uh, forever. And, um, you know, as soon as those relationships break down and, and that trust is not as strong, um, it, it, it won't work. And, you know, it seems to work. The online meetings seem to work for, you know, if you've got three or four people on the line. But if you've got 10 to 20, you know, they, they can be quite awkward and stilted and a lot. I think a lot go, goes unsaid. Oh, look, and, and the, the same people that dominate will dominate. Um, that's just sort of how it how it goes. And there has been some benefit. I know I've spoken to a few asset owners um, and asset managers that have said that they've seen more of a democratization of information because rather than having things happening in the, in the water cooler or the kitchen or so forth, um, because of these sort of more regular catch-ups, information is shared more freely um, and it's available to everyone. So, yeah, there's there's... Yeah, positives and and negatives that that come from this arrangement. Yeah, I think there's a lot of positives actually, and that's one of them. Um, you know, more more people uh, get heard. Interestingly, in one of my companies, productivity has gone up, and in one sort of operations area, and also service levels have improved, um, which is again something that you wouldn't <laughs> have expected. Um, another benefit has been um, talk of whether we actually need a BCP site going forward because the um, change to working from home has gone more seamlessly and, you know, now it's a, now it's a proven um, capability. So, you know, I do think that 
this is it's opened up a whole realm of, of possibilities uh, actually so um you know there's no doubt that life will be different so let's take the conversation back to sort of the broader retirement piece and we sort of talked about sort of the happy retirement angle we talked about sort of the change in life now that's happened because of the covid crisis there's obviously been a lot of change that's happened around retirement um particularly because the government has allowed for early access um curious to get your thoughts on on sort of how that's evolved and and sort of the thinking behind it yeah i mean i i have supported uh what's happened i i think you know administratively it has been hard but it's a very unusual situation and i do believe that um you know unusual times require unusual solutions and, and when people don't have income uh you know w- we know what the ramifications of that are. So I, I think that it has been the right thing to do. Obviously, you know, the massive issues in in the superannuation industry has been the level of illiquid uh, assets. Um, from a Unisuper point of view, the, you know, our liquidity levels are actually, uh, our level of illiquid assets are a lot lower than um, a lot of other funds and actually are in that first round um, the number of our members requesting access was uh, lower than we anticipated as well. So um, it's it's gone, you know, relatively uh, smoothly uh, from that point of view. Yeah, curious on, on your thoughts around sort of, you know, we had early access and, and yes, it was designed to sort of help address sort of a, a short-term issue in the market and the economy really slowing down. But at the same time, it feels like the industry has spent a very long time trying to get members engaged and trying to encourage them to put more and more money into their superannuation so that they do have this retirement pool they can then rely on. And now we've sort of got them engaged for what I would maybe consider the wrong way, which is the ability to potentially withdraw um, funds. Yep, I agree. <laughs> That's an issue, but you know, it's a little bit like publicity. Any publicity is good publicity. <laughs> Maybe any engagement is good engagement. Um, uh, you know, I, I the the longer that I've worked in the industry, the more concerned that I've been about the the lack of understanding of what our members have uh, in their superannuation um, accounts. Um, you know, some of those statistics about um, how many members understand that they've got life insurance in their super. Now, funnily enough, that has actually changed quite significantly over the last couple of years, so that's good. Um, but, it, but it just goes to show you uh, that that level of understanding and therefore engagement is a lot lower um, than, than you would want it to be. And, um, you know, I think that the... the <laughs> The older I get, the more I support, um, you know, intelligent defaults uh, in our super system. I think that that is the best way of um, caring for our members. It's interesting, you know, when, when you talk about sort of in the, this, this default system, but at the same time, there's a lot of questions out there about sort of default systems and whether we need to have really more tailored solutions for everybody um, because, you know, a default is typically designed for a particular fund. You know, a fund sort of looks at its median uh, grouping and then creates the default to it. But then you've got this whole spectrum of people that are maybe only 18 years of age and some who are 65 and they're all in the default 
you know, do we need to do a lot more work in terms of trying to create more tailored solutions um, for for each individual? Uh, yes, and but possibly not in the way that you're anticipating. I, I personally feel that the product side of things is largely there. The investment options are available. The insurance options are available. Uh, you know, to some extent, to a lesser extent, the retirement options are available. And I personally think that a lot of the development in the next 10 years is going to be in that digital interface and um, uh, tailoring solutions to individuals more through that digital interface rather than the end products. It's, it's, it, you know, I, I think they're largely good and suitable um, and it's actually how we interact with our members in a really easy way that um, uh, that is the area that needs development. So does that mean that we then need to sort of look at new sorts of approaches in terms of advice? I know robo-advice has been available. There's been a lot of discussion about sort of financial advice. You know, does, does a lot more work need to be done there to sort of engage people at the right times? Um, to to look at their super and maybe switch things as as need be. Yeah, I think it's partly robo advice and and partly just sort of broader digital engagement for want of a better word. So it doesn't necessarily have to be full blown advice. I, and I think robo advice is part of the picture. But I I also think you know face to face advice is very much part of the picture too. And um, having a bit of both is, is even better. And, and one example that I've seen work quite well recently, and it's in its very um, kind of embryonic form, uh, but is a, a super ed product called Retirement Essentials, their age pension concierge service is what's, what it's called. But it basically helps people work out whether they're eligible for the age pension and then helps them apply for it. And that's all done online and they upload, you know, input their their data and their information and their assets and their income um, and it then helps them with the forms and helps them uh, liaise with Centrelink. And, you know, once you've seen, uh, you know, that kind of process, which, you know, really can drive uh, a lot of uh, retirees completely nuts, once you've seen it done quite simply uh, and using digital solutions, you kind of see the light and you re- you realise how much more uh, is, is possible. And I, I think the same can be true of, um, you know, somebody approaching retirement uh, and, you know, you could have an intelligent default in a super fund, um, but by just asking them a few extra questions, you know, whether they've got a partner, whether they've got a house, um, uh, maybe getting them to input some data about their assets and income levels, you can provide a much more tailored um, default product, if you like, based on their circumstances. And a lot of that can be done online. And th- there's no doubt that a sort of extra half hour face-to-face conversation with someone at the end of the process just to um, fully explain things, you know, might, might need to be part of that. Uh, but I, you know, I can definitely uh, see how that can work. Mm-hmm. Let's let's take it to the point of of getting a pool of money, right? There's a lot of things in terms of advice through the system, and a lot of advice has been focused on the back end as people approach retirement. You know, what's maybe missing on the early stages to try and get people, you know, engagement's one thing, but also in you know 
increasing their super contribution or at least making sure that um, they're on the correct pathway to have a, you know, a pool of funds that can provide for their super? Yeah, I think a number of funds are going in that direction quite well. And, um, you know, again, I think it's as simple as um, some information on their statement about what their projected benefit is or projected income level in retirement. And uh, there was actually, might have been about a year ago now, but an academic paper using the CBUS data that um, just showed how effective that was uh, in terms of engagement. And, um, you know, we, we talk about how much members know about our funds and um, how much uh, uh, what they read and what they don't read, but it does look like their statement is the one thing that they do look at. Uh, and um, to the extent that we commun- can communicate que- clearly on that, uh, I think that's a very good option. But, but I also think, by the way, that we are fighting against human nature. And, you know, you don't have to look far in terms of behavioural economics, but it's just human nature to not think about the long term. We avoid it. We don't like doing it. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a certain type of personality that will will think about these things, but uh, a lot of people won't. And, that you know, that's why I come back to the, the intelligent defaults Um probably being the best option for a very large chunk of our membership. I have another suggestion or an idea to ask in terms of sort of building people's long-term vision. You know, sometimes I I think for super, it sort of feels too nebulous for a lot of members. Um, They don't really understand what they've invested in. They know they've got some shares, they have some bonds, maybe some infrastructure. But is there potentially an approach for the government to maybe create more of these infrastructure projects, which the super is effectively buying into? It's much clearer. Um, and so people have more of an engagement in terms of what they own. You know, they've, they've got something that, that they can reflect on, you know, whether it's a toll road, whether it's maybe the Sydney airport. Um, you know, is there something that's missing there? I, I do think the act of storytelling is a very effective way of uh, engagement. Um, and to the extent that, you know, you can have meaningful investments that do do help, um, you know, sort of convey that meaning, I think that's good. Um, I, you know, I just reflect on how busy we all are in a day-to-day way, you know, you know when you've got children and a job and... Um, uh, you know, is anyone really going to, uh, you know, in their 30s or 20s, read that newsletter? Um, uh, you know, it's 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 challenging. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I guess it was more sort of a, you know, if you're driving down a particular toll road, when you pay that exorbitant fee um, for, for that use, sometimes you feel, okay, hold on, it's going back into, you know, my funding for my retirement at some stage. You know, something that can help trigger people to feel that, that that there is that growth, they've got that, you know, it doesn't have to be a tangible piece, but they they can really sort of connect up um, to where their money's going. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, yeah, absolutely, you know, tell those stories and engage in that manner. Uh, but there's a, lot of the, there's a lot of research that suggests it's actually around, you know, people's 50th birthday, that, you know, those trigger points as to when you really start um, thinking about retirement are, 50th birthday when you pay off the mortgage and I think another one is actually when you stop paying you know school fees um 
And I think, you know, trying to engage before then um, is, uh, you know, it's like defying a, a law of nature kind of thing. It's, <laughs> it's tough. <laughs> But well, there's a there's an interesting point there where you talk about sort of the fiftieth birthday being the being that turning point and and the ability for people to pay off their mortgage. You know, there seems to be more and more research showing that a lot of people haven't paid off their mortgage by the time they've even hit retirement. So you know, is there something that maybe the 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 banking sector or the government needs to do in terms of trying to make sure that people aren't um, you know held up with such large debts? as they approach retirement and then, you know, they use their retirement savings to, to reduce um, that, that debt burden that they may have? Uh, I think there's definitely a, an awareness um, piece of work there. What, the last time I looked at the stats, um, it, they, they weren't as worrying as some of the media reports implied. Um, so I think about 25% of people when they retire do still have debt, something like that. But the amount of debt was relatively low and it was sort of, I think it was on average, I can't remember if it was ten dollars or $20,000, something like that. So, um, you know, there's definitely, um, you know, that's a skewed distribution and there will be higher amounts. Um, you know, and again, I, I come back to digital solutions there because as we, you know, it's interesting, it, during COVID we've, We've seen the benefit of the ATO data and their ability to, you know, see across the multiple super funds and hold that data and liaise with the multiple super funds. We've also got open banking now. Um, and uh, all of those things mean that the digital solutions, we will be able to target those messages like you've just mentioned around you know, people who are 60 and still have a sizable mortgage, um, you know, they, they theoretically will be able to upload their banking data into a, um, you know, some sort of robo-advice, online advice and, and generate a statement of advice and piece of advice um, uh, telling them what they should be doing. Uh, so, you know, I, I can see, you know, significant change being possible uh, just in the next 10 years in, in terms of being better able to target that. And, you know, you come back to this engagement and if it's, if it's specific to me, I'm much more likely to engage um, in, that, uh, in that messaging. Mm-hmm. So it's really a, a two-way data process of sort of you providing more, more information about your financial situation and then, you know, with a reciprocal approach from your fund to, to then sort of give back, okay, given these, this and this detail, you know, you need to either reduce your debt or you need to then contribute some more um, to the fund and, and so forth just to, just to try and keep people sort of really on path as they get to their re- official retirement date. That's right. I mean, you can imagine the power of having, uh, you know, your fund information, whatever the ATO is holding and uh, your banking data and, you know, being able to sort of pump that through an algorithm and, you um, generate you know a, a piece of advice you know that having that all of that data together um that that's pretty much your whole financial uh situation in many cases mm-hmm. let's let's sort of move up closer to the retirement date you know there's obviously more and more australians hitting that that point 
you know, one of the, the bigger issues that's sort of a societal issue is sort of the intergenerational fairness of the system. Um, and there are a number of people that are in their 30s that probably say, well, I'll never receive a pension. So um, I'll have to try and hope for the best that I'll get there. Um, versus people that are now coming up to retirement who feel that, that yes, you know, they've saved some money, but then they can still rely on a pension. You know, what what's your view in terms of how to maybe try to address some of the the intergenerational issues that maybe some people have um, around sort of the pension system that we have today so that it can continue and still you know, provide a safety net to people going forward? Yeah, I mean, I do think there are intergenerational issues, but, you know, I always point to the intergenerational report itself. And when that projects forward, even to, you know, 2050 and beyond, um a large proportion of the population are still getting a part or full age pension. And I think the number's about 70% still getting a part or full age pension, uh, you know, even that far out. So if the government's own modelling suggests that, I think that's what what should give the average Australian uh, the most comfort. And it is true to say that far fewer are on their full age pension and a much greater proportion are on part age pension. Uh, but, you know, that safety net is still very much part of the, the forward planning. You know, as we think about the safety net, I guess, how, how do you think about sort of the, you know, a traditional full pension that, that you receive? I'm assuming it's, a, it's around 30000 32000 tax-free. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, for a, a couple. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the way I think of it is that it, it would be difficult to live on that and that we need to top it up to something livable. And, you know, that's why I've always um, been in favour of uh, some sort of longevity protection, be it in the form of a lifetime annuity or a deferred annuity, but just enough to top that up to something livable. And, you know, in its simplest sense, that is buying an annuity of $10,000 per annum to take that up from $30,000 to $40,000. And and that just gives you that that peace of mind, Um, you know, this issue that a lot of um, uh, our retirees are being too frugal and they're ending up um, when they pass away, they still actually have fairly large superannuation balances in a lot of cases and that, that that's really just being used as an inheritance, which isn't what it was really designed for. And I, I think if we have that, if we create that safety net, then people will will feel a lot better about um, spending their money um, in retirement and spreading that spend rather than, you know, holding on to their assets um, because they're so worried about how long they're going to live and outliving their, their money. It's a, it's a really interesting piece where people sort of, they get fearful and, and they, you know, decide to save more and more, and obviously, with the you know the number of people that are moving into retirement, the, you know their saving is actually going to be sort of a, a drain potentially on the economy more broadly. So the government needs to encourage people to spend and also to take pressure off the financial system. Is there is there any sort of ideas that you can think of? You know, one thing is you know not leaving money to your to your to your children, which is always controversial, and there's always been this negative light around estate taxes is that particularly a way to maybe make sure that people do spend what they have first and then you know rely on the government as the as the social safety net later 
Yeah, there's, I think there's a number of carrots and sticks. And I, you know, I have been a bit influenced by, um, you know, the kind of work of Thomas Piketty on inequality and um, intergenerational transfers are a um, big contributor to inequality in our society. And interestingly, particularly um, property that is passed down the generations but superannuation as well would be. So, you know, I, I think um, equality in society is a very uh, important thing to uh, aim for and for us to, um, yeah, a, a very desirable goal. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of untoward consequences of um putting its estate taxes and death taxes in place. So I won't just kind of dismiss those. <laughs> um, but uh, certainly encouraging people to spend their money in retirement for the reason that they were given the tax deduction in the first place, uh, I think is very important. And I think the first step towards that, probably before you do anything like estate and death taxes, which I am open to, by the way, but the first step is this uh, retirement income um, sort of or retirement covenant and basically getting trustees to design a retirement strategy for their funds. And, you know, that's not just a product. It, it, product is the often the foundation of it and thinking about longevity protection and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, I think it's a broader strategy. It's around segmenting your membership and seeing who's going to have an adequate retirement and who's not seeing, you know, seeing what their projected benefits are. It's about um, how you're going to engage with those members. It's about what advice offer you can offer those members. Uh, and it's about intelligent defaults. Uh, so, I, you know, I see that as a very broad retirement strategy. It is product, it is engagement, it is segmentation, it, it, it's advice. Um, and I, I think that's probably the first step. Um, so I'm very supportive of, of that. Um, Have you looked into um, reverse mortgage? I think it was Australian Super that looked at it about three or four years ago. Um, and there has been sort of this conversation that sort of swirls around in the background about people sort of unlocking the value of their house because they're very asset rich, but, you know, don't have the, the cash flow. Is, is that something that maybe it should be a government system that people can sort of you know, take take some money out of their house that that sort of allows them to live, and then the government sort of gets paid back when on the sale of that property. Yeah, I, I think given the particular characteristics of the Australian market, which is that we do have a disproportionately large share of our wealth held in our property, that that very much is part of the end game, and there already is a government. Um, solution available and I'm trying to think of its name but I can't remember it um, so but again you know it, it comes back to the you know the engagement with the member and you know historically those reverse mortgages have had a you know they've had a very tarnished reputation not just in Australia interestingly um, in different parts of the world um, so you know we do have to be careful with how we engage with members on this. And it can be very controversial even within a family unit because uh, there will be children that are expecting inheritances and that sort of thing. And if they realise that it's sort of being chewed up in a reverse mortgage, 
uh, you know, that can be uh, problematic. So, um, but I, I do think that that is part of the solution. And I, again, think that um, kind of digital engagement is, is part of how to bring that um, to the member. But that absolutely should form part of how some of our members receive their retirement income. So last question, I thought it'd be a controversial one. And, and um, you know, for some cases, people will find it very hard to retire because they won't have that money. And if people are living to 100, does that mean that we now need to sort of assume that we should be working to 75 or 80? Yeah, I think we do. Um, I mean, funnily enough, I've both of my parents are now, um, my mom's 76, my dad's 78, and they're both still running their own businesses, um, admittedly working part-time. But I absolutely think we need to rejig our um, expectations. And it's a very individual um, decision, actually. There's some people who literally cannot work longer um, and there's others that can work a lot longer. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a big chunk of people who never want to retire at all. Um, so, you know, we have to have a flexible system that, that um, caters for all of those. But, you know, I'm certainly expecting to work into my 70s and pro- probably my 80s, actually. Well, it's an interesting place to, to finish the conversation because we actually started with the whole premise of happy aging, taking care of our well-being and mental health. And, and so now we, we get back to sort of the situation where we may end up working till our 70s and 80s. So thank you very much for your time today, Nicolette. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.